Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Faith Christian Podcast. At Faith Christian, our purpose is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information about Faith Christian, check out our website, fccnp.org, or stop by on a Sunday morning. We'd love to meet you. Now we hope you enjoy this recent teaching from Faith Christian Church. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, it is well. Through all of our lives, our good times, our bad, our struggles, our triumphs, our successes, our failures, through it all, our eyes are on you. Through it all, we allow you to lead us and to guide us. Through it all, you are there faithful to us, promising us the gift of life abundantly and life eternally. Father, we thank you for who you are, that we can, we can follow after you. We thank you for who you are as you teach us how to love. We thank you for who you are as we experience your love and your grace in our lives. Father, now we turn to the pages of Scripture. We read these words of Jesus today. We ask you to speak to our hearts and our minds, to move to our hands and feet, and to teach us how to love better. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. I want to thank Josie and our worship team for leading us today. Uh, as always, a wonderful job. Josie did ask me to mention to you, as uh, we are beginning to make preparations for our Easter season, uh, believe it or not, spring will come as, uh, as winter sets in this afternoon, uh, but uh, spring will come at Easter this year. Uh, she's curious about maybe having a worship choir this year at Easter time, and if that's something you would like to participate in, a small choir that would uh, re rehearse a couple times and, and sing and help lead our worship on Easter Sunday, if you'd be interested in maybe participating in that, uh, see me or see Josie today after the service. Let us know, um, or send us an email, let us know that that's something you would be interested in participating in. Just kind of want to gauge the interest of the congregation, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Uh, we are uh, in this series of lessons, uh, this uh, beginning of this new year, that we're calling Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. And what we're doing in this series, if you've been with us, um, you, you already know, but if not, let me just catch you up. We're looking at some words of Jesus that, quite frankly, I wish. I don't know if you may, you may not share this opinion, but my opinion is I wish Jesus would have never said these things because they're hard and they're tricky and they're a little sticky sometimes and they can get really really messy when you try to put these things of jesus into real life and uh, the one we're going to talk about today i'm just going to tell you before we get into it i need to make a disclaimer all right so forgive me already but i'm going to leave you today when we read these words of jesus that i wish jesus had never said we're going to talk about them. We're going to try to explain what they meant in the first century when jesus said them what do they mean for us today in 2023 as we examine these words, we walk through this, this topic that we're going to look at today, these words of Jesus, I know, and I'm sorry, I know I am going to raise more questions than I do answers today. And you're going to walk out of here going, huh? And forgive me. I'm just telling you, forgive me. I can say that because I am not even going to try to pretend and fool you today that I think that I figured out all the answers when it comes to this thing that Jesus is going to, we're going to read from Jesus today. This one is difficult. This one is hard. This is one where even as followers of Jesus, as church going, especially in America, where you live, the church in America really struggles with this one. Really, really struggles with this one. So here's what I'm going to ask you today. Even though you're going to leave here with more questions than you do answer, I'm going to do my best. I need you to do me a favor today. I'm going to ask that you take Jesus seriously today. 
take him seriously. We, we don't always do that. Do we? I mean, we, 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 we give him great honor, right? But we don't always take him seriously. We like to soften Jesus up a little bit, don't we? I mean, we've got our Jesus action figures. I've even got a Jesus bobblehead with me today. Yeah, that's, and, and Jesus is really, really white in this bobblehead, isn't he? We like Jesus the mascot, don't we? We like Jesus the good luck charm. But we don't always take Jesus seriously. When I was a teenager, no lie, I had a t-shirt that read, Jesus is my homeboy. <laughs> yeah, I was, that, I was that much of a nerd. Yeah, I, I really did. I wore that shirt to school, yeah. We want, American Christian, we want a Jesus that lives in the suburbs and drives an SUV. We want a Jesus that supports the American dream. We want a Jesus that votes the same way we do. <laughs> We want a Jesus that will back us up in our efforts to achieve whatever it is we try to achieve. We want a Jesus that will, that will be the good luck charm, the, be the genie in the bottle, so that we will achieve the success or make money or have the happy family, whatever it is that we most desire. We want a Jesus who fits our desires. I'll say it like this. We like Jesus just as much as we can make Jesus like us. And that makes it really, really difficult for us to hear some of the things that Jesus said that we wish Jesus hadn't said. So the issue today, my, my big ask of you today is taking Jesus seriously. Quite frankly, it's what the world needs right now. Really, it's what the church needs right now. We need people who are willing to take Jesus and his words seriously enough to put them into practice in our own lives. And I'm going to tell you, before we even read Jesus' words today, this ain't easy. It's not easy. But my ask for you today is take Jesus seriously. All right, so let me read for you a paragraph of Jesus' words. These are the words, this is one paragraph out of a three-chapter sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount, which I, my, this is my opinion, I put this section of scripture above every other section of scripture. If scripture seems to contradict itself somewhere, always refer to the Sermon on the Mount and let that, let that take the high ground over every other piece of scripture. These, this is Jesus's manifesto, if you will, on how to live life in the kingdom of God. This is Jesus's charge to you and me about how to do life as we follow Jesus. These, these three, three chapters, Matthews 5, 6, and 7, this is one paragraph one paragraph from that sermon. Ready? Here we go. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. The words of Jesus that I wish Jesus had never said. You have heard the law that says the punishment must, must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. I told you you're going to hate this. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken away from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. All right, so here's the picture. When I read this text, here's the picture that pops into my head, all right? Maybe, come with me on this little journey. Go back to you being in middle school for a minute. And your mom or your dad just told you something that you didn't want to hear, not, you did not want to hear. 
like you're not going to go to this party you're not going to go to do this you don't get to do this whatever it was something you did not want to hear and you as the ever so wise middle school student you decide it's time for you to protest to your parents and so you say things like but 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 what about but 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 dad but 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 mom but 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 that's just the picture i get when we hear these words of jesus jesus says here here's what jesus said and we're like but 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 jesus hold on but, 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 but you don't really, Jesus, you don't really mean that. But, 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 but Jesus, I, I got a question about that. But, but, but Jesus, you're not, you're not really serious, are you, Jesus? But, 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 but I, I don't agree with that, Jesus. But, but Jesus, I got a real, I got, Jesus, I got a real problem with that, Jesus. So what I want to do today is I want to walk through three of the big buts. That's not a good way to say that. Three of the big objections. Yeah, I caught it. I heard it as soon as I said it. All right. Three of the big objections that we raise when we read this difficult passage. Here's the first one. But, 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 but Jesus, 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 does this really apply to us? I mean, this, you said this in, in the first century, Jesus. Does this really apply to us? And, and if it does apply, Jesus, I mean, but, but, seriously, Jesus, if it does apply, what way does it apply to us? We, we like to look at this passage and say something either like, well, you know, this was for them way back then, all those thousands of years ago. That made sense for them. It doesn't apply to us. Or... Or, and this is where we really like to do this, we like to say, well, this is just for a certain segment of our lives. Not for our whole lives, just for, for a certain section, section of our lives. You know, the, the personal side of our lives has nothing to do with the wider social realities of our world. We like to, to, to compartmentalize these words of Jesus in our life. Here's the problem with this kind of thinking. It's that we are to when we do this, we are totally putting Jesus into our own category. Like I said a minute ago, we, we, we soften Jesus up. We don't take him seriously when we do this. We like to put him into our own categories. We're making Jesus look like what we want him to look like. But in Jesus' world, in Jesus' mind, for us, as we live in his kingdom, as we live a life that we're following Jesus, you cannot separate the different parts of your life. You can't separate your church life from your work life from your home life, from your social life. It, it doesn't work like this. If you follow Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus in every part of your life. You're, it's, it's an all-in kind of thing. So, let's go back to the first century for a minute. Jesus has gathered these people around him. He's preaching this sermon on the mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. His disciples are there, the people who are closest to him. There's a huge crowd listening to him. And Jesus says, this is the way you're supposed to live. He's telling them this in the first century. Now, these people who are gathered around him, this is a group of people who want the world to change. I suspect I'm speaking to a group of people like that today. A group of people who want the world to change, they're, and they're trying to change the world. In the first century, when Jesus says these, world, th these words, the world is full of social tension. On the one hand, we've talked about this a little bit the last couple of weeks, there was this, this overarching thing that the, that the first century Jews had to deal with, and it was Roman oppression. They lived there in, in Israel and Palestine, that part of the world. They were under Roman occupation. They have these people, the Romans, who basically run the world at this point in history. And the Romans have taken over their property. They've taken over their livestock. They've taken their dignity. They've taken over their places of worship. They are, the Romans have totally, are trying to totally demolish their way of life. And on top of this, it gets even more complicated. Because the Jewish people, the people that Jesus is talking to in this moment, the people that Jesus was one of, the Jewish people have all of these ancient promises from God through the prophets for centuries, 
that one day, one day God is going to show up and deliver his people. That God is going to become and be the Messiah, the Savior, who will deliver the people, God's people, from their enemies and free them and liberate them so that the people can be the people that God has called them to be. And that they're waiting for that. So they're under oppression, and they're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the Savior who's going to come and set them free. So in Jesus' day, there were all sorts of groups or factions, if you will, or philosophies or, dare I dare say, political parties who were trying to respond to this tension that existed in their world, and they would respond in various ways, had various philosophies about how to respond to this tension between the Roman, opposite, uh, Roman occupation the Roman oppression, and these promises waiting for God to free them, deliver them. One of these groups, just one, we don't have time to talk about all of them, but I want you to understand what's going on in the first century. One of these groups we call the Zealots, Z-E-A-L-T-O-S, Zealots. They were a group that would say, it's not just about us waiting for God to do something. We're going to go do something. We're going to work on this problem. We're going to be active in trying to fix this problem. Not wait on God to do it. We're going to take care of it. And if God wants to show up, God can get on board with, with what we're doing. God's more than welcome to come along with our plan. And he can latch on to what we're trying to do. In other words, they're putting the cart before the horse. So they're always talking about things, these zealots, always talking about things like revolution and rebellion. They have in mind to violently, literally, violently resist Rome. They are all about taking up arms and taking on the Roman Empire. And what would happen, and this happened over and over and over again through here, we know this from history, not just from the Bible, over and over again, someone, one of these zealots, would rise up and they would get the people all lathered up, and get them all whooped up, and they would go and try to violently overthrow Rome. And they would just get destroyed. I mean, literally destroyed, dead, dead, like in, in the ground, dead, destroyed by the Romans. Fast forward another year or two, the same thing would happen. This was a cycle would happen. These zealots would rise up, get everybody all whooped up, and they'd go try to take on Rome violently, and they would just, they would get shut down violently and be put to death. Matter of fact, one of Jesus' own disciples, a guy by the name of Simon, we know him as Simon the Zealot. He was one of Jesus' closest followers, one of these people that had this political view of, we're going to go take care of this and let God come along if he wants to. And so Jesus shows up on the scene in this world of this political social tension, this world where there's this group of Jews called the Zealots who are trying to violently overthrow Rome. Jesus shows up and says stuff like, the kingdom of God is at hand, which if you didn't know better, which in the first century they didn't, you and I in 2023, we, we, we know how the story ends. But in the first century, you hear Jesus say, the kingdom of God is at hand. They think, ha ha, Rome's going down. This is it. This is our moment. This is our big chance. This is, this is it. Rome's going down, and Jesus is the one that's going to lead this. But yet, in this passage, Jesus says, the way you want to do it, by taking up arms and throwing out the government, that's not the way. 
That's not the way to bring in the kingdom. You're totally missing the point because you don't know how to love your enemies. You see, in this, in this passage, in, in verse 39, uh, we have <clears throat> the words of Jesus translated in our English Bibles. <clears throat> Pardon me. Do not resist an evil person. And I gotta be honest with you, that's not a great translation. It reads smoothly. I, I get why, they, why the translators did this, and it's like this in most of our English translations. But the, the original word for resist in the Greek language is actually, a, it's a military word. It, it's, it's a word of force, which these zealots would have loved, right? Except <clears throat> Jesus is kind of flipping the tables on them. And the word probably, this, this technical term, this military term, probably should be translated in English. We would understand it more clearly if it was translated like this. Don't take up arms. Or do not violently resist an evil person. It's a battle word. Don't battle to resist an evil person. So we need to recognize <clears throat> there is nothing in this text, there is nothing in the historical context, the social context of the first century, there's nothing within the gospel as a whole, if we look at the whole of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the story of Jesus, that would make us think that these words of Jesus that we really wish Jesus hadn't said, that these words of Jesus are supposed, supposed to apply to only one portion of our lives and not our entire lives. According to this text, in its context, and we're going to see this from Jesus' examples and from the examples of the people who followed Jesus, that non-retaliation is a way of life. So the question, first question, but, but, but Jesus, does it apply? Yes. Yes, it does. Which, of course, begs more questions, right? More Oppositions, more objections to what Jesus has to say, like this one. Here's number two. But, 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 but Jesus, <clears throat> isn't that dangerous to just take it? it that, that doesn't make sense. Isn't that unhealthy? Isn't it just kind of silly or dangerous to tell people to just take it? We read this paragraph, and we think that Jesus is talking about being a doormat, and, and, and it, that if a, a wife, if a wife is being beaten, she should just take it. Or if our kids are being abused, they, they should just take it. But listen, that could not be farther from what Jesus is trying to say here. Jesus is not saying, be a doormat. Let's read this text again, at least part of it. I want you to pay close attention to some of the details, because the details are so important for us to understand what it is that Jesus is trying to say. Listen to verse 38 again. You've heard the loss that says, the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. What Jesus is talking about here is this law of retaliation. This never-ending cycle of violence. If I do something that causes you to lose an eye, then you get to do something to me to cause me to lose an eye, so we're even. That's the idea. But then when you do something to me to cause me to lose an eye, well, then I gotta get back at you. And then you gotta get back at me. And then I gotta get back at you. And then you see the cycle? This never-ending cycle of violence. This was the norm in Jesus' day. This is the way they lived in Jesus' day, this never-ending law, uh, <clears throat> law of retaliation. If you live by the law of retaliation, this cycle, this never-ending cycle of retaliation, it just ends up with more and more violence. <clears throat> Pardon me. Walter Wink is a scholar who's done a lot of work on this theory. The theory is called, and this kind of bugs me a little bit, but the theory is called the gift of redemptive violence. Again, this kind of bugs me. It's the idea, his, his, his research and his work is, is studying this idea 
that violence actually redeems the world. In other words, his theory is violence makes the world a better place. And he talks about in his research, he talks about how in our culture, the one that you and I grew up in or live, and still live in, our culture from a very young age, this philosophy, this idea of redemptive violence is hardwired into our brains. And here's his example of how this is hardwired into our brains. He goes through and he analyzes a bunch of cartoons. Yeah, TV shows for kids. Anybody remember the, just one of his examples, remember the old cartoon Popeye? Remember Popeye? What happens in every episode of Popeye? If you don't know Popeye, YouTube it when you get home, all right? You can, you can find Popeye. In every episode of the, the, of, the, of the cartoon Popeye, this bad guy in the story by the name of Bluto, <laughs> what a great name, Bluto takes the, the female character, her name is Olive Oil, all right? Bluto takes Olive Oil captive. He takes her captive. And Popeye, who's this sailor man, tries to defeat Bluto, the bad guy. He's the good guy. The bad guy, you got the damsel in distress. That's the story of every single one of these episodes, right? So Bluto takes olive oil captive. Popeye tries to defeat Bluto, but Popeye's too weak. He's too much of a, of a wimp. And so he eats a can of spinach, and he grows strong, and his muscles pop out of his arms, and he's big, strong, and he pounds Bluto into the dirt, and he saves the day, right? Popeye the sailor man. It happens every single time. And it's not just Popeye. There's all kinds of cartoons and shows like this. In this, in this theory, in, in this example of Pluto, there is never any thought given to long-term reconciliation. No one ever gives a thought to the possibility that Pluto could one day become a not-so-bad guy, that he could be transformed, that he could be changed. No thought is given to the possibility that there could be a non-violent resolution, that Popeye could use some other means to resolve the conflict between him, Bluto, and olive oil. But it's just constantly drilled into our heads that the only way to defeat evil, the only way to defeat an enemy is to destroy that enemy, is to fight the enemy. And so we keep this law of retaliation, we keep this cycle of violence going. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. We don't get mad, we get even. We talked about that last week. The problem is, <clears throat> this isn't just in our cartoons. This isn't just in our movie theaters. It's in our homes. It's in the way we respond to our spouses. It happens when we smart off to our parents. It happens when we yell at our kids. It happens in our friendships when someone betrays another and well, I'm going to get you back. I can't believe you did that to me. It happens on the highway when someone cuts you off in traffic. It happens at work. It happens in our schools. It happens all throughout our world. And the problem is we begin to think, we begin to believe the lie that violence is necessary. We begin to think that the only way to change the world, the only way to transform the world, the only way to fight evil is through this idea of redemptive violence. And it completely stunts our imagination and our creativity on how to change the world. Listen to a couple more examples of what Jesus said. Verse 39 and 40. 
I tell you, do not violently, I, I made the change there, do not violently resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. We assume, we assume that there are only two options we have when conflict arises is to fight or flight. We either stand up and fight like a man or we run away. Jesus is saying to us, there's a third option. There's a third way to, there's another way to do this. I'm going to give you a couple of phrases today that I, I, want, I want you to help, I think will help us get at what Jesus is talking about in this, this passage. The first phrase is this. I'm going to use the phrase creative nonviolence. Let me see if I can demonstrate for you what's going on in this passage, particularly this first example about hitting the other cheek. Nathan, where, where are you? I've asked Nathan to come help me. Um, I needed somebody I could hit. All right? And when I asked Nathan to help me, his wife says, can I come up and hit him instead? <clears throat> We'll pray for your home. Okay, so Nathan, come up here and stand next to me. <clears throat> You're kind of a big dude. What was I thinking? All right, um, somebody else. Uh, <laughs> all right, so here's what's going on. To hit someone in, in this context, first century context, you would use the, your backhand. You would slap them with a the backhand, all right? This is not only an injury, if I hit Nathan with the backhand, it's not only an injury, it's an insult. It, it's, it's saying it's, um, it's, it's a, degrade, a, a degrading motion. It's saying, you are less than me because I'm going to slap you down with the back of my hand. All right? It's, a, it's what masters did to slaves. It's what the Romans, we talk about that, did to the Jews. Unfortunately, it's what too often husbands do to wives. It's what strong people do to weak people. It's what the oppressor does to the oppressed. Uh, it's what the dominators do to the dominated. And what Jesus says, if you turn, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other. So let me just show you the example, all right? We're gonna, I'm not going to really hit Nathan because I'm really afraid of him, okay? So, so if I were to de degrade him and insult him and try to injure him with a slap, I would, with my back of my hand, I would slap him like this, pop, right? And he would turn away. So now for him to turn the other cheek, what does he have to do? Face that way, Dan. All right, I slapped him. No, not this one. Come on, come on. You've been on stage before. Pop. He's done. So I've slapped him. For him to turn the other cheek, what's he have to do? He's got to look me in the eye, doesn't he? He's got to turn back to him. And he's saying to me at this point, you can hit me again, but you're going to have to look me in the eye. You're going to have to acknowledge me as an equal. You're going to have to realize the power has shifted in this conflict. You see what Jesus is getting at? He's not saying, oh, hit me again, hit me again, this side. You didn't do it. He's saying, Jesus is saying, if you get hit, turn the other cheek, look the oppressor in the eye. Now you're making a spectacle of the oppressor. You're showing anybody who's watching the injustice that's being portrayed here. Do you, do you see what we're getting at? All right, good, thank you. Good job. Give Nathan a hand. All right. <clears throat> what Jesus is saying, when you, when you turn up, now you're turning back, look me in the eye, I'm taking the power away. I'm changing the dynamic of the conflict. And the power, I've made a spectacle of you. This injustice is now seen. I've transformed creatively, nonviolently, I've transformed the situation. The second example that Jesus uses, we don't have time to go through all this. The second example here is about if someone takes your outer cloak, give to them your coat as well. Well, in the Jewish world, that's about all you wore, or these two coats, two cloaks. And what's going on here in this example that Jesus says, this is, a, this is about economic debt. This is about finances, all right? 
and the Romans, they would have come in to, to, to Palestine, to Israel. The Romans would have come in to the Jewish land, and they would have taken your property, and they would have taken your livestock, they would have taken your stuff, they would have taken your kids into slavery, and then all you have left, literally all you have left are the clothes on your back, and they're still suing you, trying to take the clothes off your back. And Jesus is basically saying, if they take your pants, give them your boxers as well. We won't ask for a, an audience participation in this one, all right? <clears throat> there's two things we need to realize. There's two things going on here in Jesus' response. In the Jewish world, if you were naked, shame is brought on not the person who is naked, but the person who sees you naked. And so you are shaming this person. You're bringing shame to them, which in an honor culture like the first century is a very big deal. And secondly, think about the scene this is going to create. Right there in the middle of town, we're talking about a demonstration here. All of a sudden, you're naked, and this guy's got your clothes in his hand. You're drawing attention to the injustice of the situation, potentially transforming the conflict. I think the best contemporary example of this, of Jesus' teaching, was a young girl named Rosa Parks. A young girl who said, no, I'm not going to sit on the back of the bus. She wasn't violent. She didn't retaliate. She didn't keep the cycle of violence going. She just simply said, no, I'm not going to play by your ridiculous social rules anymore. You see, the thing that the oppressor wants is power, domination. And the one thing that you take from them when you turn the other cheek is exactly that. Jesus is talking about a different way of fighting violence, creatively, nonviolently. Here's the second phrase I want, want you to take home with you. I think this will help us understand. It's this, this idea of active peacemaking. Go back to this paragraph of Jesus in Matthew 5 and notice all the verbs. Turn the other cheek. Hand over your cloak. Go the second mile. Give to the one who asks. Those are action words. They are initiative, taking initiative words. And when you take initiative in a situation like this, you are taking initiative away from the one who's attacking you. You're taking power away from the oppressor. Jesus isn't calling us to be doormats. He's calling us to be peacemakers, active peacemakers, agents of God's redeeming, transforming love in a violent, divided, and hate-filled world. Which brings us to the third but, 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 but question. And I think this is the biggest question of all. But, 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 but Jesus, <laughs> does it work? Seriously, Jesus? Are you joking here? Do you think, you, Jesus, you don't know our world. Do you seriously think that's going to work? That if I somehow refuse to respond to violence violently, that things are going to get better? Let me try to answer this question by asking a couple more questions. Here's the first question I want to ask to answer the does it work question. Does it, by it, I mean this idea of nonviolence, creative nonviolence, active peacemaking, does it transform the conflict or the aggressor? Does it actually do anything to diffuse or to change the situation? And the answer is yes. Oftentimes it does. It might be hard to believe, but it does. It worked for Ashley Smith. I don't know if you know her story, but back in a, in a, she was in a courthouse back in 2005 when this guy named Brian Nichols walked into the courthouse and started shooting. And then he held this woman, Ashley Smith, held her hostage in her own apartment. She said they'd been there for 13 hours when she decided to get creative. She pulled a book off the shelf. The, the book was called The Purpose Driven Life. Some of you have read it. It was a book that her church had given her. 
And she started reading that week's chapter, that day's chapter from the Purpose Driven Life, started reading it out loud. She read the chapter for that day, and after she finished, Brian Nichols says, can you read that again? So she did. And that started a long, couple of hour long conversation between this hostage and the hostage taker, where they talked about God, they talked about faith, they talked about family, they talked about what this guy had just done. She told them that she had a daughter and that her husband had just died and if he did anything to her, that her little girl wouldn't have anyone to take care of her. Later on, she said, she said that she knew that if she talked to him in the right way, he wouldn't hurt anyone else. I knew, she says, she writes, I knew if I made him feel comfortable, then I could get things the way I wanted them, not the way he wanted them. She said by the time that it was morning, she made him pancakes. They watched the news together, coverage of what he had done. He let her go. She called 911. He turned himself in. Later, after all this had kind of shaken out a little bit, the, the Atlanta police chief said this in his press conference. <clears throat> Make sure I get this quote right. It was her calmness and resourcefulness that led this to a successful conclusion. It was her imagination and her commitment to nonviolence that allowed her to find ways to do something about this conflict. Most of us will never be in a situation, I pray, that we're taken hostage. But I bet you're going to be in a disagreement with your wife. You're going to have a choice at that moment. You can live by the law of retaliation, or you can be actively peacemaking. Your kids are going to be driving you crazy, so you can blow a gasket, or you can stop and listen. Your parents are going to say things that you don't want to hear, and you got a choice. You can be a little punk and talk back to your parents or you can show respect. You can get cut off in traffic and you could choose to do all sorts of things in that moment that you would not want the preacher to find out about. Or you just let it go. You might be betrayed by a friend. You could betray back or you could, do, do, do you get the idea? There are all sorts of situations in which we have to make a choice between violence, and that's not just physical, verbal, emotional violence, and nonviolence. Does it work? Yeah. Sometimes it does. But honestly, that's not the most important question. This is, I think, the most important question. Does it, again, this idea of creative nonviolence, turning the other cheek, does it display God's Radical, dare I say, ridiculous love? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, every single time. When I tell you that my prayer for this church, my prayer for you, my prayer that you hear me say every Sunday morning from this platform is that God teach us how to love better, listen to me, this is what I'm talking about. If you love like Jesus, if you love, even when people are hurting you, you simply cannot fail to display 
God's radical, ridiculous love. Your life becomes an example of the statement of the truth that God is love. Jesus turned the other cheek. Jesus walked the second mile. Jesus gave up his cloak as well as his tunic. You know what happened to Jesus? It got him killed. But that's not the end of the story. God raised him, raised Jesus from the dead, and he'll raise us too. So regardless of how far you think we're supposed to take Jesus' work, the undeniable fact is this. Those of us who claim to follow Jesus must be committed to fighting evil without stooping to it. Let me pray for you. If our communion team will go ahead and take their places, get ready to serve. God, I thank you for these words of Jesus. I, I don't like them, but I thank you for them. I thank you for the challenge ahead for each one of us. I thank you for the, uh, the questions that are still on our, on our, in our minds that we're going to have to work through as we wrestle with, and, with, with these words of Jesus. And God, give us the, the intellectual honesty to do that, to wrestle with these words in the context of our own lives. What does it mean for us to take Jesus seriously in this moment? God, now as we move to a time of communion, as we focus our attention on the cross, as we reflect and remember the sacrifice of Jesus for us, we recognize that he chose nonviolence, and it cost him his life. But costing him his life earned for us our abundant life and our eternal life. So we focus now on the cross. We focus now on the sacrifice of Jesus. We pray in his name.